Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. the women's podcast i'm kathy sheridan and of course if this is your first time listening or you just found us thank you so much for choosing us in this episode we'll be hearing from claire wills an academic and writer who has just released her new book missing persons or my grandmother's secrets it's a brilliantly written engaging and unusually self-questioning memoir that follows the trail of a disappeared cousin when I was in my mid-twenties and I had recently given birth to, um, I was a student and I'd got pregnant and I'd given birth to my son. Soon after that, one of my aunts told me that in the previous generation, something similar had happened. My uncle had um, got a neighbour pregnant and my cousin Mary had been born in 1955, but she she was born in Bessborough, mother and baby home, and brought up in an orphanage. And this was the first I'd heard of her existence. That was Claire Wills there, and you will not want to miss this conversation. But first, Bridget's Day is here, and that means loads of events are happening all over the country to celebrate her and our new bank holiday on Monday. It's a particularly special one, as this year marks the 1500th anniversary of her death. It's not just a one-day celebration for Bridget either. There will be events running all over the long weekend. We have a list of some of those events on the Irish Times website, which we'll link for you in today's episode description. With Kildare being the official home of Bridget, you can expect a lot of festivities happening there over the next few days. This evening, Thursday, February 1st, the Nothing Compares concert will feature performances from Imelda May, Ham Sandwich, Camilo Sullivan, Neve Regan and Nell Meskel. On Sunday, February 4th, there will be a special event featuring traditional and contemporary songs about Irish women entitled She Moved Through the Fair, featuring Moya Brennan, Loa, Lisa Lamb and the Henry Girls. Lux Landscape Theatre will lead two fiery processions to celebrate St Bridget in Maynooth and Kildare towns over the bank holiday weekend, and I'll be in at least one of those. I mean watching, not participating. There's loads more happening all over the country, so do take a look at the official website, bridget1500.ie, to find out more. Now, back to today's guest. Claire Wills was born in England to an Irish mother and an English father. Following the birth of her first child in her mid-twenties, she learned about a long-lost cousin of hers, who was born in the Bessborough mother and baby home in the 1950s which is quite recent. This revelation sent Claire on a journey deep into her family history. She wanted to find out more about this lost girl who was born into a mother and baby home only a few miles down the road from where Claire enjoyed idyllic summers in Ireland with her family on a small farm. Her book, Missing Persons or My Grandmother's Secrets, follows this 
very personal investigation. To discover the missing pieces of her family's story, Claire searched across archives and nations in a journey that would take her from the 1890s to the 1980s, from West Cork to rural Suffolk. What began as an effort to piece together the facts of her family history became an act of decoding the most unreliable of evidence, stories, secrets and silences. The result is a moving, exquisitely told story of the secrets families keep and the violence carried out in their name. Here she is, Claire Wills. Claire, you're an academic and an author and you're also half Irish. Tell me about the Irish side of your family. So my mother was born in West Cork in 1930. She's now 93 and she lives in London, close to me now. She came to England in 1948 to train to be a psychiatric nurse at Nethan Hospital in Croydon, where her older sister was already working. Um, So it's that generation of men and women who left immediately after the war. My mother married an Englishman, so I'm, I'm literally half Irish rather than wholly second generation Irish in England. Yes, yeah, which is which makes your self questioning in the book so interesting in my view, and we'll get to that. Now, the book is called Missing Persons or My Grandmother's Secrets, and it's a very intimate look into your family's history at one level because of certain events that happened in your family, but which in fact happened all over Ireland as we as you came yeah. to realise. Yeah. But the wheels were set in motion for this particular book in the early 90s when you began investigating your missing cousin, Mary. Tell me about Mary and how you found out about her. Well, you know, the truth is I don't know that much about mm. Mary. And one of the things I write about in the book is deciding that I didn't really have the right to find out that much more either. But... When I was in my mid-twenties and I had recently given birth to, um, I was a student and I'd got pregnant and I'd given birth to my son. Soon after that, one of my aunts told me that in the previous generation, something similar had happened. My uncle had um, got a neighbour pregnant and my cousin Mary had been born in 1955, but she she was born in Bespera, mother and baby home, and brought up in an orphanage. And this was the first I'd heard of her existence. And you were told, Claire, crucially, that she had died in a car accident. So there were a number of things you were able to establish through your own investigations. But tell me, first of all, about Mary's parents, Jackie and Lily. Well, Jackie was my uncle, and again... I can't tell you that much about him. I have what I have from my mother, who was 10 years younger than him. He was uh, born in 1920. When he was born, his parents did not own a farm. Uh, My grandfather was a labourer and my grandmother had been a servant working in, in larger farms. He was born in 1920 and when he was about 10 or 12, my grandparents inherited some money from a relative in America, and bought a farm. So he became kind of a small farmer's son. I think he was very handsome. Mm. My mother remembers him as, uh, you know, great with his shotgun, out trapping rabbits and shooting game. Clearly, my mother very much loved him. Yes. And he was destined to take over the farm. He was, yeah. Which makes 
all of what happens next even more baffling. And Lily was a neighbour's child, as we might say. Yes. Tell me a little bit about her. Well, Lily, Lily was 19 when she got pregnant. Again, I don't know very much about Lily. And I want to say again, I, I decided I didn't have the right to try and find yes. out more. This wasn't my story to tell. So Lily is a person in the book because she's Mary's mother. But I, I didn't want to tell a story about Lily that I didn't know to be true. Yes. But we do know certain things, such as why your grandmother utterly objected to any marriage between Jackie and Lily, even though it would have been would have been automatically a shotgun marriage at the time. Why was Lily rejected by your grandmother? Well, I think there are probably a number of reasons. Firstly, she probably was shocked by, you know, what she would have seen as kind of as, you know, the sin of sex. But also Lily had what um, my mother called a withered arm. I more recently met Lily's nephew, who explained to me that there was nothing kind of genetic about this this mm. problem with her arm. She had been a breech baby and a bone setter had come. This would be the mid-30s and done a, you know, a really bad job of setting the arm. Um, so that, but she, she was seen, I think, as poor stock. Yes. You, you know, not, not good enough. Yes. Um, so the secret is out. Lily is taken away to Bessborough Mother and Baby Home. Jackie disappears to England, mainly because your grandmother decided this was not going to happen and that's what... I, I don't think mainly because of that. My grandmother decided it wasn't going to happen and so did Lily's parents. You know, all the grown-ups decided this was not going to happen, including Lily and Jackie, I think. Mm. There's, there's no evidence to think that Lily also at that point didn't think, let's go to Bessborough, have this child adopted. You know, I've called the book My Grandmother's Secrets because those are the ones I know about. Yeah. But all the grown-ups, and, you, you know, I, I think this is really important. I'm writing about this story because it is so common. 57,000 children born in mother and baby homes between 1922 and 1998. That's at the lowest estimate something more like 70,000. They all had grandparents, not just, you know, grandmothers, but probably three or four grandparents who made this decision. And what I wanted to try and do in writing the book was to understand the decision. Yes. But again and again, Claire, people's thoughts when they're reading records from modern baby homes and reports, and which are invariably terribly depressing, it comes back to where were the men? What happened to fathers? And I think one of the one of the amazing things you've done in this book is you've constructed a life around Jackie, whom I don't think you ever met, but you've constructed a life around him on the basis of the lives of itinerant Irish workers in Britain at the time. Yeah. And there's something really quite heartbreaking about what you've done there. Can you just tell me a little bit about that side of, of, of the book? Yeah, well, it, it, I felt it was really important not... And not to leave the men out. Ironically, there are far fewer records about men in relation to kind of unmarried pregnancies. When women went into institutions, when their children were born in institutions, when they went to orphanages, there's a paper trail. You know, we've got 
records of admission, records of uh, leaving the institutions, records of, you know, the county council paying for, for children. But for the men who could quite effectively sort of withdraw or disappear, go to England, go to Dublin, there are no records unless they have talked about it. I, I recently was reading John McGarren's letters, and he's, he's one of these fathers. He um, got a, I think she was an Irish Times journalist, actually, a woman pregnant in 1962, and he refused to have anything to do with her, and she went to England, had the child, and in her, his letters, he, he talks appallingly, uh, to me, reading it now, appallingly about how he was going to have nothing to do with her, and it was her own fault for getting pregnant kind of thing. So, you know, we don't know how men felt, and some of them probably felt like McGann, a kind of uh, refusal to have anything to do with it. Others may well have felt a kind of terrible loss mm. and, and loss of the life they had known. That's exactly it, Claire. And I think what you sort of you raise in your book, and you know, most unusually, is Jackie was destined to take over this much coveted farm that, mm. your, that the family was very proud of and had, yeah. you know, at a time when it was very hard to keep a small farm going. But he was the farm's hope. He was the one who knew about farming. Yes. He was going to be her grandmother's sort of stave, I suppose, in terms of keeping this going and keeping her going. Yet, she was prepared to go along with this, so was he, where he would be, yeah. go to England, disappear into the, the woodwork. There are no papers Nothing from officialdom to indicate that no, he lived he, in England even. No, no, he, he did effectively disappear. He became yes. a kind of agricultural worker in um, Essex and Suffolk. I try, because I have so few records, for, So well, I have no records except for a death record in relation to Jackie and the few things that my mother has told me about that period of his life, which she doesn't really know about, even though she was living in England too. Um, she was, you know, working as a nurse, mm. but she was established, she was bringing up children, she was married to, married to my father, this kind of Englishman. So, you know, Jackie kind of disappeared, and I've had to try and imagine his life through films like, you know, Samuel Beckett's has, a, has an incredibly moving play called A. Joe, uh, a man in a room on his own in London, imagining, remembering what he has lost. Mm. Um, and I've, I've tried to, you know, I may have got it all wrong. Yeah, but you, you, you may indeed about Jackie, but, but you also paint this picture of that Irish itinerant life for Irish men in, in, in England back then, which I think a lot of people will, will be compelling for a lot of people because it's something they may not have given much thought to before. I mean, these were ogres as far as people are concerned. They're men who deserted and abandoned and a lot of them yeah. did do that. Yeah. Maybe Jackie did, maybe he didn't. We actually don't know. We don't know. But, yeah. but whatever, whatever he wanted, he probably didn't want yeah. what he got, yeah. which was this lonely life and an early death. Yes. And as for Lily, Lily ends up in New York. Yeah, she goes to live in Staten Island and she lives with relatives in Staten Island. She comes home quite frequently to look after her mother after her father died. Um, but her, an existence of, the existence of her daughter is kind of erased. Yes. Now, which brings us to Mary, the daughter. Tell me about Mary. So Mary was born in 1955. I have uh, a copy of her um, mass card when she died in 1980. 
in England. Mary's life evolved very tragically, actually. I mean, she was, they, they, I thought one of the most unusual things was that she was, she and Lily remained together in Bessborough for, I think, four years. Yeah. And then for a while through the industrial schools. And then they became separated somehow. Lily took Yes, off. although I did talk to a nun who uh, told yes. me that um, Lily always wrote to her. So I do think she had a uh, you know, a mother in the background, mm. which many children didn't have. And perhaps that's partly because she couldn't be adopted. And so her mother kept contact with her. So it's a slightly different story from one that we hear, I think, very tragically a lot at the moment about, you know, adopted children who, who felt that terrible sense of loss and yes. never knowing who their mother was. Um, Mary did know. Mary did know. And Mary went to London, got involved with a, an Indian man, became pregnant, went to India, which I thought was extraordinarily brave of her, to meet the Indian man's family, who rejected her. I have that from one person. I believe it to be the case, but I think, you, you know, it's not like I've been able to, to verify any yes. of that. Yes, But I do know that she killed herself in yes. January 1980. At what age? She was 25. Yes. So, and I know, Claire, you, you and, and the book makes it clear that you are constantly broadening this story out to include the story of Ireland and all the missing people. But also at the heart of it, there is this incredible story being revealed about these breadcrumbs, as you call it, that your grandmother leaves for you, as though she's encouraging you to investigate. On the one hand, these are secrets and they've never been talked about. On the other hand, she's giving you bits of information that you as a historian, you as a curious person, you as a very close family member and very close to your cousins in Cork and to Irish life where you spent nearly all your summers, I gather, idyllic summers, because you had a very, very happy time in yes, Ireland. Yes, I did. But she was, she was slowly, as she got older, revealing things to you, as did your yeah. aunt. So just tell me about, you have theories about why they were doing that, about the, why we hold secrets. Uh, so talk to me a bit about that. About yeah, it's, it's my mother who's been yes, your mother, seeding, yes. seeding these yes. uh, things. Well, I suppose one of the things I wanted to, to think about was my mother is a great storyteller. Uh, my grandmother was a very good storyteller as well. Um, there, and there were stories that often didn't quite um, go where you thought they would go. Um, stories with bits missing. Um, that's, I think, what I mean when I say seeding breadcrumbs, you know, taking me along a route and then kind of slightly leaving me yeah. bereft. Where do I go next in the middle of this forest? Or even withdrawing what they just said. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. it's very confusing. Absolutely. I was really interested in the culture of secret keeping between women. That's mm. partly what this book is about. Women protecting each other, caring for each other by keeping secrets or keeping silent about aspects of family life. What I have uncovered as I've thought about this story is at least four and possibly five generations of pregnancies outside marriage in mm. my family. That includes me. Um, and I was really interested in the different ways in which those pregnancies got dealt with. 
say, in the 1890s or the 1920s or the 1950s when my cousin Mary is born and then in the 1980s when I have a child. And one of the, one of the things I, I think is important is the, is the kind of informal way that an unmarried pregnancy or a pre-married pregnancy could be handled in Victorian Ireland or, uh, you know, before independence, before we had the institutions that seemed to offer a kind of way out for families. Mm. And I think my mother's storytelling and her breadcrumb offering is part of that world of secret keeping. I've tried in the book to think about the, the kind of history of 20th century Ireland from the point of view of women who had very little power often, you know, who, who didn't have much control, who didn't have sexual autonomy, and whose main autonomy really is the stories they, they tell and the stories they withhold around their sexual lives, their bodily lives. It's a book about, you know, women's bodies and, and, and how we cope in, in different periods with, with our sexuality. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I suppose that the verification of this, Claire, is when you talk about your grandmother. And the book is so extraordinarily well paced that it is actually, as John Banville put it, like reading the work of a masterful novelist. You are kept reading and reading. I read it in one sitting because... I won't call them revelations because that sounds too sensational. But the stories around your grandmother, Molly, who was a Victorian and who you discovered had was, was, was uh, six months pregnant when she married and who may actually have had a baby before that. I don't think she did. I do tell this story about my mother telling me that she thinks that her mother had a baby before she was married. Mm. 
There's an absolute... I'm convinced she did not. But I was very interested in... I'm fascinated by the fact that my mother wanted to tell this story. Mm. It's a story that kind of... I think she she sort of fantasised, she created when she was 12 or 13 during the war. So my mother was born in 1930. In 1942, 1943, shortages. They, they were living on a farm. They had um, cows. Uh, they made their own butter. And my mother was uh, detailed, as it were, once a week, once every couple of weeks, to take a pound of butter to women who lived in a shop inland. And it was quite up, long. Up a mountain. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it was quite <laughs> hard for long walk after school. She she kept the butter in the confessional at church dur- while she was at school to keep it cool. And then she would pick it up and take it up into the, into the hills where she met two women who'd kn- who had known her grandmother when she was a child, uh, when she was a young woman. And it was in the townland of Glauna Kalina, which as you'll know, means, you know, valley of the little burial grounds. And I think my mother, who knew that there were secrets in her family but didn't know what they were, kind of fantasised a secret about another baby. And I think she did so because what she knew from her mother and her grandmother is that keeping secrets was a way of looking after people. I think she made up a secret in order to look after her mother. I know it sounds weird, but I've tried to explain that in the book. And it Mm. seems to me a very important insight into how women care for each other. What this all tells me, Claire, and and it's absolutely throughout the book, is that you are incredibly self-questioning about everything. I mean, even there, I'm asking you those questions, whereas another author might say, yes, that was a story that was in the family and they might sort of embellish it and turn it into something extraordinary. You're there saying, actually, no, I don't think it happened. And that's because you are being very precise, but because you're telling a larger story. You're always conscious you're telling a larger story. But you still did the research. You still got down and serious with the research. You called in to visit old nuns. Yeah. You examined endless official papers. Tell me a bit about that. Tell me about the efforts you put in to. Well, this goes back to um, my discovery of this secret that had been kept from me for 25 years or longer and my shock at knowing that I had a cousin that I had never met. And when I talked to my mother about it, although she expressed sorrow and regret, she didn't express the same kind of shock and indignation that I felt. And I just felt compelled. I felt compelled to to kind of dig away at that story in a way that quite often I felt very guilty about. Mm. I say in the book there's something odd about shame, something sort of sticky. It gets attached to all kinds of things where you think it might not. So, you know, it felt like there was something shameful that had occurred and then it felt shameful of me to be trying to find out more about it. It It's like it had got stuck to me and I kept on leaving the story and thinking, I haven't got the right to find out anything more about this. You keep saying that to yourself and you also bring it back somewhat. You say, I'm not even 
wholly Irish. You know, I only spent my summers there. And it's a very interesting topic. You felt, in many ways, you felt, no, you didn't have the right to tell this story. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And at a certain point, I thought, actually, what I'm feeling is illegitimate, which is, like, ironic. Um, And it was that moment of realising that what I was trying to talk about was a kind of feeling of uncertain belonging. You know, how... My, my cousin wasn't allowed to belong. And I was coming at this story from my own feeling of kind of uncertain belonging. And it made me recognise that perhaps I did have a way into this. And I guess part of what I'm saying here is that the story didn't all, all happen in Ireland. Yeah. My uncle came to England. My mother was in England. Mary came to England. We were all growing up in England. And, you know, if we if we look at the larger story, you know, the the history of mother and baby homes and missing persons for all these families. England and America are just as much part of that narrative as as rural Cork. And it was at the moment when I understood that, I thought, no, I'm trying to talk about how the missing persons have been spread out Mm -hmm. and trying to somehow, I did feel a duty to gather them up together again. Yes. So it's no longer an Irish story. And in many ways, you come back to the what what is Irishness? You know, is it about getting on your knees, saying the rosary, going to mass, all those things? And you decide in the end that, in fact, it's really more about absence. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I kept on asking myself was, if I was writing this, exploring this family history, I had to be doing it for a larger purpose rather than just, you know, spilling the beans on my family. I, I just think that would be kind of gross. Um, so I kept on trying to think about the re- the relationship between my family and other families. What was typical about my family? I think typical was that my grandmother's siblings went to America in the 1880s and 90s. Typical was that my mother and her most of her siblings came to England in the 1950s. Typical was that we had babies out of wedlock. Typical was that we used mother and baby homes. That's the most typical thing that I'm exploring in the book. And in the end, the story for me is about what is the rhetoric of the Irish family is almost like a, a smokescreen for the fact that the family is scattered. The most typical thing about the Irish family is not, you know, the rosary and the hearth. It's the people live elsewhere. Yet you dug in, Claire, and you stuck with the research through thick and thin. You rang up convents, you tracked down old nuns. Tell me about Sister Ciarán, for example. Oh, that was a bad day. Yes. That was a bad day. Um, So... So in the 1990s, very early on, when I'd, you know, only recently discovered about Mary, I, you know, I was worrying away at this and also feeling I didn't have the right to worry away at it. But I rang up the convent of Mercy and spoke to a nun and asked if I could see the record of admittance. I wanted to find out a date, you know, when, when it, how long had she spent in Bessborough and how, when had she come to the orphanage? 
So I, I rang up and I spoke to a nun who said she could show me the record of admittance. And so I, I went to the convent and um, the woman opened the door and I began to explain again who I was. You know, my name's Claire, I'm trying to trace, blah, blah. And she put out her hand to stop me and she said, I was at school with your mother. And I, you know, she could see that I didn't understand what she was saying. But she, she had been at school and I, so obviously she had known Jackie and Lily. And I think part of the reason she wanted to show me the record of admittance was that she understood the sadness of this story. And she didn't keep the secret from me. But she had not known Mary. She had not been in the convent when Mary was there. So she gave me the phone number of a nun who she had already checked out. It was all right for me Mm. to call, Sister Kieran. And so I called her from my car sometime later, later that week. And it was a very distressing conversation. I think I probably began badly by saying, you know, I was just, you know, I'm this person, I want to find out more about my cousin. And again, she cut me off. She sort of said, oh, yes, I remember her. She was a moody girl, a moody girl. And I think she said other things. She definitely told me that um, Lily had written to Mary and Mary had written back. Mm. But... You know, Sister Kieran knew what had happened to Mary. Mm. And I just was given a kind of horrible insight into what her life in the convent must have been like. I sort of wished I hadn't called. I didn't want to know it. Yeah. Was that the worst day, Claire, when you were researching? Or, or no, were I, that, I, think, I think that's up there in bad days. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because that brought the whole I thing home to you. I wept and wept. Yes. When, do, when was all this happening, Claire? When were you doing this, this, this investigating? Ah, yes. Um, So this was the mid-1990s, and that was also the time when I had um, my own baby who died. And I think that got mixed up with it isn't quite right. But I do write about um, the death of my baby immediately after birth. I hemorrhaged during childbirth um, in, in a hospital in London. I write about that in the book, Partly because I think the book is about trying to understand kind of the physical, almost the physical experience of women in the past who lost children, grown-up children as well as babies. And I felt, again, I suppose I keep saying I didn't have the right, but I I felt I only had the right to examine people's kind of distress if I if I really examined my own distress and shame and tried to go through what I felt or what I remembered feeling to the bigger story. And, yeah, that was all happening in the, in the mid-'90s. My, my son was born in uh, 1996. Yes. And you do mention that you really wanted to make this little boy count, that you, you, yeah. you, 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 you erected a rather large headstone for a little boy who was only two days old, I think. And obviously there was a lot of self-questioning going on inside yourself then. Why am I doing this? Why am I making such a huge ceremony about this? You had a proper funeral. You did everything according to the rights of, a, of an adult person. But you were, you, you feel you were influenced by your own history in some ways, I suspect. Would you? Well, looking back now, I wonder whether that was what was going on. I I talk in the book about how I I didn't really want to acknowledge he was dead. Mm. I I kept 
kept him next to me. Um, and there was there was a midwife in, in, in the hospital who was just incredibly sweet. Her name was Helen. And uh, I just, you know, he was dead, but I was just cradling him like he was still alive. Um, and she would come and say, this went on for several days, um, I'm just going to take him off to the fridge for a little bit. I'll bring him back. And so she did this every now and again. And I remember at a certain point saying, what kind of fridge? I was imagining him in one of those sort of crime drama metal yes, drawers. Yes, pull out the drawers. Yeah. Yes. And she, she, she kind of went, hmm, I think it's a Zanussi. <laughs> Actually, you know, I remember laughing because I remember the feeling of agony in the cesarean scar. Um, you know, I was still all being stitched. And I had a drain in and everything. But um, my friend Claudia, who I um, acknowledge in the book is the person who has encouraged me to write this, uh, she stayed with me in the hospital and she only recently told me after she'd, she'd read the final draft. She said, you know, I went out to the midwives and I said, you've got to do something. That woman in there, she's bonding with her dead baby. You've got to do something about this. And apparently they said, no, no, that's fine. It's the right thing to do. But I think, yes. So the idea of wanting a dead child to, be, to, be, to count, to still live, was, was a, a major seed for writing this book. Yes. Claire, at the end, you have so many questions in this book. I mean, and... and of course, then, as we're coming towards the, the end of, of, so that's 1996, that's what, 20, 25 years ago? He'd be 27 now. He would. A lot has happened in the meantime with the, the, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation, the bodies of eight, the 900 babies, bodies of the yeah. two and babies. So much is happening. Meanwhile, you're pursuing a very elite career in, in, in England. Tell me just a little bit about what you were doing in the meantime, professionally. Yeah, so I, I've had a job uh, teaching English literature in, in London and then I went to Princeton for a bit and now I teach at Cambridge. Um, but all the time, I guess, I've been, you know, following these stories and, and certainly the tune um, kind of horror. Um, and when the Commission of Investigation reported and said, do you remember, it was about four years ago, I think, and that, that report that, you know, right, like almost the first page said the principal responsibility for what happened to the women lies with their, uh, the, the parents of the women who got pregnant and the fathers of their children. I did feel a, a sense of rage but also confusion because it seems to me, well, like a way of shifting blame off the church and state that did bear responsibility for what happened in those mother and baby homes and certainly for, you know, the neglect of children and, and so on. But on the other hand, I knew that my grandmother and the other grandparents had, had been involved. I think... The term responsibility isn't helpful mm. because it brings a notion of, of blame and finger pointing. And I think it gets in the way of us understanding why families would use the institutions. 
And that that was really what I was trying to think about in the book and trying to think about it not just from the point of view of my own family, but to think of all of us now, think of my answerability to this to this history. I know I, I was born in England, but I too am answerable to the fact that as a culture, this was something we did. And there are there is blame and responsibility at um, legal levels. You know, redress and reparation needs to happen. But beyond that, I think something different needs to happen. We, we need to understand the ways in which we are all answerable for a culture which which we swam in somehow, which enabled us. Yes, because what you say, I think, at least once in the book, is that you try to explain what happened, but you cannot excuse it. Yeah. Talk to me a bit about that, because I think that's a, something to get to grips with, really. You've talked about sort of responsibility being a, being a hard word to use, and it is, because you can't just find one section of society and say, yes, it was them. I don't, whoever you ascribe it to, because there are all these murky areas, you know. There was collusion, wherever it came from. In the end, Claire, what is your conclusion? What was it all about? You keep asking about your grandmother in particular. Was it worth it? Well, I guess I think my grandmother really suffered for the decision she made. Maybe she was not able to make any other decision, not just because of what she felt about her own farm or her own son or the withered arm or anything else, but because Lily's parents also wouldn't let another decision be made. You know, I think think we're talking about people who possibly felt they had very little agency. My grandmother had grown up in Victorian Ireland when she did have very little agency. So it's not that I... I'm saying we can excuse what happened because people felt they had no control and they had to do what the priests and the nuns were telling them. But we can understand why they might be in that position. And I I don't have a better answer than that. I think we are also answerable to that history. It's fascinating in the sense that what makes your grandmother's story particularly valuable, Claire, is that she had gone through the panic of being pregnant while unmarried back in the, in the Victorian era. And then it happens with her son and the neighbour. And I suppose we will always ask ourselves, why could she not have seen that there was another way to deal with this? Now, I'm, I'm not blaming your grandmother personally, but all of society, everybody knew as you say, everybody knew. That's the whole point of your book. Everybody had had some experience of it. Yet, in the end, all these private decisions were made to just shut it away, never speak of it again. Yeah, and I I guess one of the things that I think is crucial is to understand that when the institutions were there, they seemed to offer a kind of homegrown Catholic way of solving these problems. This was the right thing to do, to use the institutions. These were your priests, these were your nuns saying, we are going to take your private familial problem, keep it private, and solve your difficulties. Whereas earlier, nobody had wanted to use institutions because institutions were associated with, you know, the British 
workhouses were something you would do anything to avoid. And suddenly these institutions were taken over by your own priests, your own nuns, and they were saying, this is your world. And I guess one of the things I say in the book is that the Irish family was possibly the most institutionalised in the world at this point. There were nuns in convents, there were children taken away to you know, be in seminaries at age 11. There were people in boarding schools. There were huge numbers of people in psychiatric hospitals. There were the Naglin laundries. There were, you know, to a certain extent, the, the historian Nicholas Canney says, you know, actually in rural Ireland in the 1930s and 40s, it's quite hard to find a teenager. You know, people were in institutions. I think it, it became something that seemed utterly normal. And that doesn't excuse the recognition of the cruelty and the violence that sometimes went on in those institutions. But I think we do have to understand how, how ordinary it must have felt to use. That was the obvious thing to do. Claire, after all that, how do you feel about the book now? It's a huge thing to do in a small country to write a book about your own family. It's a huge thing to write about a whole country and to talk about the Irish as being basically absent, that, that, that the story we tell ourselves was only partly true, that most of us were gone during those years. You dug and dug and you found things that maybe were extremely disturbing. Mm. Are you OK now? <laughs> Actually, I, I had to read the audio book in November, I don't know if you've ever had to do that, but it's a weird experience. You have to go into this little cell um, and wear a comfortable clothes and, and um, you know, not cough, not gurgle, and you know, <laughs> stay very, very still. And it took two days. And by the end of it, I found I was weeping. I was so embarrassed. You know, my own book was making me cry. What was wrong with me? And I think... I guess what I realised to a certain extent was that the book was where I was putting my own feelings of distress still about this story. And not just my own family, but, but so many people. I have had so many letters and emails and messages from people who said, God, I know that culture of secrecy. Adopted people saying, I'm, I'm one of those missing. I know about it. Um, that level of distress I think you know as a writer I'd put it into the book I'd I'd made my sentences kind of hold it for me and then reading it out loud I can't, I kind of couldn't bear it again so I guess I <laughs> I feel sorry for anybody who's going to read it it's a wonderful read. As I say, I, I wet it all in one sitting. I expected nothing but gloom and awfulness. And there is a lot of tragedy and distress in it. But my goodness, it's an amazing book to, that keeps you going, that keeps you reading. And it's quite an achievement. I think I mentioned earlier that John Banville said that you were a, it was the work of a master novelist. I presume yeah. that's where you're going next, is it? Will you write a, will you write a novel? I doubt it. Let's put it like that. I doubt it. Well, we all wish you would. Claire, thank you so much thank for you. coming into the Women's Podcast. Thank you. That was Claire Wills there. The book is called Missing Persons or My Grandmother's Secrets and we think it's already a book of the year. One for the reading list 
and definitely one for the book clubs. There'll be a lot to talk about, I can tell you. If you enjoy this episode on the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast as it really makes a difference to us. I'm Cathy Sheridan and this podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it from me. Mind yourselves. I'll talk to you next time and happy St. Bridget's weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.